0: Well, now I turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue our study of 1st Corinthians. We come to the 15th chapter now. We'll be reading the first 11 verses of that chapter, so 1st Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord again as he gave to the Apostle Paul as he inspired and superintended the writing of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And so we have here the very word of the living God. So let's attend with reverence again to its reading in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that... He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, whom not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And thus the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. let's pray that he would bless its reading and hearing. Lord our God, we do ask indeed that you would bless both the reading and the hearing of your word. It is is exposited now, we ask that you would cause it to be truly taught, and that each one of us would hear what you need us to hear, and that thereby our lives would be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is... All about resurrection and this is just the introductory part of that. Uh, one of the points Paul makes in this first passage is that the gospel rests on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to get to that point and to introduce this topic of resurrection Paul tells us several things about the gospel. Number one the gospel is that which the Apostles declared not some other message. Number two, the gospel saves those who believe. Thirdly, the gospel is the message of Christ as predicted in the Old Testament. And fourth, the point that's going to carry forward into the rest of the chapter, the gospel rests on the reality of Christ's resurrection. And then lastly, the gospel is the message of salvation by God's grace. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel as he begins this chapter. The gospel. The gospel. The Greek word is euangelion, good news, good message. The word was used generally in Greek for any welcome message. Often it referred to a message of victory in battle. If you can imagine being someone in a city, you're of the people of a city and an enemy army is marching into your territory. And so your army has marched out to meet the enemy. And a messenger returns. And if the messenger returns with news of victory over the invaders, you would call that euangelion. You would call that good news. That's a gospel. Our English word gospel just comes from Old English meaning good word, good news, good message. No news is better. There is no better news. No more welcome message to a sinner aware of his sins and of the consequences of those sins than to hear the message your sins are paid for. Your sins are forgiven. The penalty for them has been paid that you have been reconciled to your holy creator. Death will not hold you. Death which is the wages of sin can't hold you because your sins are paid for. And notice that Paul declares to the Corinthian Christians now not something new that that they haven't heard before, but the same gospel that he preached before, he says. It's because there's only one gospel, as we'll see. It's the same message they had received before, and in which they remain if they are true Christians. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. The only way you can stand is in this gospel. And in this passage we learn several things about that gospel, about that message of good news. Number one, the gospel is that which the apostles declared. So again, it's not going to be something uh, that other than what they declared. So again, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, past tense, I preached it before, which also you received and in which you stand. So I'm telling you the same message. There's only one gospel. There are not several gospels. There is one gospel message, one message of the good news of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1, Paul speaks of other so-called gospels. When he writes, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. So I'll call it a different gospel for, for convenience here, but it's not really another gospel, because there can't be another gospel. It says, but there are some, he says, who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he declares, but even if we, or an angel from heaven, oh, if Joseph Smith had listened to this, Even even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. The word he uses there is anathema. You're not to have anything to do with that messenger. He's preaching a false gospel. Don't even have anything to do with me. Consider me so accursed that you want not to be near me if I preach to you a different gospel, Paul tells the Galatians. There may be other messages which claim to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is really only one gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 3 of his letter, Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. There's one system of faith that was once for all delivered. There aren't many Christianities. There is one Christianity. Paul refers to the other apostles as witnesses to this same gospel in verse five, and that he was seen, same Jesus was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. The gospel is that which the apostles of Jesus Christ declared. It's not some other message than what they declared. Secondly, we see in this passage that the gospel saves those who believe. That's not to say that the mere words of the message are the Savior, but rather the gospel message is the Savior's chosen means of bringing salvation to his people. We saw that back in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. That while the world might think it's silly, the preaching of the cross of Christ is what actually saves those who are in Christ. Verse 2, he says here, By which? speaking of the gospel, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now some might take this out of context and misunderstand Paul's words here. I think he's saying that if you're saved, you're saved if you believe the gospel and you can only remain saved if you continue to hold fast to that gospel by your own strength. As if to say a truly saved person could slip up and lose his or her salvation. Well, that's not actually what Paul's saying. We know our faith is something granted by God. Philippians one twenty nine. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So the prerequisite there with the suffering is that you were granted to believe in the first place, and then also to suffer for His sake. But if it depended on me. To keep my saving faith, I would fail, just as if it depended on me to generate the saving faith from within me, I would fail. But it depends on God, and God does not fail. If he grants that I believe, such belief will not cease. No, rather Paul is pointing out two things here. For one, some people seem to believe, but they don't actually possess true saving faith. They're professing Christians, they're on the roll of the Corinthian church, right? But they may not actually believe. So he's saying that you stand in this gospel if you actually believe it, right? As in the parable of the sower, also known as the parable of the soils, that we see in the one place it appears is Mark 4 1 through 20. There are those who seem to receive the word of God, but for whom that word is like seed which falls on rocky ground, right? It, It does not really take deep root. It can't endure tribulation. Or it's like the seed which falls among the thorns. It it may seem at first to take root, but it's choked out by earthly concerns. It didn't really live. Those in whom the word truly takes root will find that they bear fruit, as Jesus says, 30, 60, and 100 fold. And when tested, their faith will endure. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For another thing, so Paul is saying on the one hand there might be some people whose profession of faith is not honest. But then for another thing, he's foreshadowing what he'll be dealing with in the next passage as we go on, Lord willing, in the future here in in 1 Corinthians 15. Some of the Corinthian Christians here are claiming it is possible to be a Christian while simultaneously rejecting the fact of real physical resurrection. Paul's going to, to point out but if there's no resurrection as some among them are saying, then Christ didn't rise from the dead. And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then he's not the holy one of God that was predicted in scripture, and so faith in him is vain. You have no reason to think that you're saved at all if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You're putting faith in a failing savior one who isn't the Holy One of God. And so he says, your faith is vain and we're still in our sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And so he's saying here, if as some of you think, there is no real physical resurrection from the dead, then you're rejecting the true gospel. And you are now believing in vain in a false gospel. So repent now, and believe what I preached to you before. So there isn't any different gospel message. For those who do believe the authentic gospel, it is God's instrument of your salvation. He uses that to bring his people to a to saving status. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace, the free gift of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Romans 10.17 So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god so you hear the gospel preached you believe it you put your trust in jesus christ because the message is true and thereby you are saved romans 10:9 if you confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart that god has raised him from the dead so the faith we're talking about here is faith in a jesus who rose from the dead you will be saved the gospel saves those who believe a third thing Paul's saying in this passage is the gospel is the message of Christ as predicted in the Old Testament. It's not like this is a brand new thing. It's not as if Jesus came along and said, forget all that Old Testament stuff, here's something new from God. That's the going to be the view of many of the Gnostics that will come along. There are some the ideas of the Gnostics already developing here at this point as we have noted before. And one of the the teachings of some Gnostics anyway. Gnostic is actually a term that we use to apply to a whole bunch of schools of thought that were false Christianities, if you will, in the first uh, centuries of the church. And uh, one of those ideas is that the God of the Old Testament is a bad God. He's a flawed God, maybe an evil God. But the real good God who made him has now come to us in the person of Jesus to tell us what we really need to know. Uh, Paul's saying here, no, you can't detach the Old Testament from the tomb here. The gospel is the message of Christ that was predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Old Testament God. Verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received. So there he's saying, um, again, I, I'm not telling you some message I made up. I'm telling you the message that I received from Jesus himself. It says, what? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Remember, the New Testament is just beginning to be written here. No no gospel, not one of the four gospels had yet been written when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He'd written Galatians and his letters to the Thessalonians, and that was about it. That's all that that we know for sure was written of the New Testament when he wrote 1 Corinthians. So he's not talking here about how Jesus died and rose again according to Luke, right? or according to John, or something. When he says according to the Scriptures, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament. The message Paul received is a message of the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. In Genesis 15, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples here as we... We don't have time to go through the whole Old Testament and show how Christ uh, was revealed there. But in Genesis 15, the Lord had Abraham take a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon, and they were to be sacrificed. So Abraham sacrificed them. Those three larger animals he was to cut in two and lay the two pieces opposite each other on the ground. This was the beginning of an ancient covenant-making ceremony, and Abraham would have been familiar with this, and he would have known what to expect. What Abraham would have expected next is now, God and I are going to make a covenant, right? So God's going to appear, and he's going to walk with me between the pieces of these animals. So ordinarily, the two parties of the covenant would have been walking between those divided pieces of the animals together, as if to say, may this happen to me, if I break this covenant, if I don't keep my end of our agreement. But what happens in this case is actually that the Lord puts Abraham to sleep. He can do nothing to hold up his side of the covenant. And instead, in a dream, he sees those animals there laying divided on the ground, and the Lord appears as a smoking oven or fire pot and a burning torch. And those two manifestations, if you will, of the Lord's presence pass between the pieces of the sacrificed animals. As if God was declaring, I'll of course keep my side of the covenant and if and when you fail to keep your side, Abraham, I will bear the penalty. Psalm 22 clearly predicts the way in which God came and bore that penalty, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as well as his resurrection is clearly implied for after his death, with a, not only just a crucifixion being described in, in Psalm 22 before crucifixion was invented, but the particular circumstances of Jesus' crucifixion, them dividing his clothing and things like that. But by the end of the psalm, the, the one who suffers and is pierced is there alive to declare to generations to come the glories of God. Isaiah 53 likewise predicts the death, the suffering and the death of God's servant on behalf of his people, after which he's buried in the tomb of a rich man, so he's clearly dead. And yet then he's alive to see the results of his atoning work by the end of the chapter. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So, I won't rot in the grave. Of course, Jesus fulfills that. Indeed, the golden thread throughout the whole Old Testament is Christ. The Gospel is the message of Christ as predicted in the Old Testament. And so Paul is saying, these things happen just like the Scriptures predicted. We'll have more opportunity to point out some of those as we make our way through this chapter. Lord willing. The fourth thing though we see here is the gospel rests on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's something that Paul is going to make clear here because it's going to be really important for the things he's going to say in the rest of the chapter, verses 5 through 8, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. Cephas means rock in Aramaic. Peter means rock in Greek. Then by the 12 after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain, though some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Peter met the risen Christ, of course we know, Luke twenty-four, thirty-four. The disciples declared, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. So you appeared to Peter. John, or rather Luke, 24, 36-43, and John 20, verses 19-29, through 29. we don't have time to read all those passages, but they record his appearance to the rest of the apostles. Paul mentions more than 500 others who saw him all at one time, apparently here, John 20, verses 11-18 through 18, tell us that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, Matthew 28 through ten tell us that the other women who followed him, or other women anyway, alongside of Mary Magdalene who followed him, saw him risen from the dead. Luke twenty four, thirteen through thirty five records his appearance to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He also appeared to his brother James. John tells us in John seven five, for even his brothers did not believe in him, so prior to his death and resurrection his brothers didn't believe but after he rose from the dead and appeared to his brother James i'm sure James believed then and we know for a fact that at least 3 of his brothers believed because they became leaders in the early church James, Simeon and Jude three brothers of Jesus two of them wrote letters in the new testament most of those witnesses were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians the Corinthians could go ask them, well, how foolish would Paul be to say, "Say, yeah, look at all these witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus when he knew full well that the Corinthians could go and ask them, and they'd say, no, we didn't see that. Not only did his disciples see him, but they actually touched him, as we read in Luke twenty-four thirty-nine. So it's not like he was just a ghost or something. Jesus really and truly physically rose from the dead he was bodily there Paul would have been foolish to point to so many witnesses who could have denounced him as a liar if his claims of the resurrection weren't really true as one born late Jesus appeared to Paul himself much later than he appeared to all these others Paul knew Jesus had risen from the dead. He had met him. And as he says in verse 9, he persecuted the church until then. Why would he have quit doing that if he didn't really believe? And why would he believe if he hadn't have been met by the risen Jesus? In Romans 1.4, Paul writes that the resurrection proves that Christ is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He says that According to the flesh he was the son of David, but by his resurrection he was declared to be the son of God. It proves Jesus accomplished, the resurrection proves that Jesus accomplished what he came to accomplish. As we saw a few minutes ago in Romans 10.9, we have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead in order to be saved. The gospel rests on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, we'll hear a lot more about that as we go forward in this chapter. But then our fifth point for this morning is the gospel is the message of salvation by God's grace. Verses 9-11 through 11, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all Not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. That so there, so we preached and so you believed, uh, points back to Paul's many references to grace there. The apostles preached by God's grace, and people believed the message by God's grace. Paul would never have believed if it were left up to him. We know what a hater of the church he was prior to this. Indeed, no one would would believe except that God's grace were given to us. Paul's experience makes that abundantly clear. Not everybody's experience is, is quite as drastic as Paul's. but Paul's experience makes it abundantly clear that this is of grace. It took God's clear intervention to make Paul believe. And the salvation that he gained was obviously not something that he had earned himself. What had he earned? He had not only earned damnation by his sins in general, but think of the extra condemnation, the extra wrath of God that he earned by persecuting God's people. All he earned was God's intense wrath for his persecution of the church. But instead, God gave him the free gift of salvation. And so Paul labored hard. Not of his own strength. He says, so on the one hand, I'm motivated to work harder because I see just what a drastic difference this grace made. But I don't actually have the strength to labor hard like that for the gospel. I couldn't do it myself. It's actually the strength that God graciously gives me. So by that same grace of God that brought Paul to faith and that gave Paul the strength to do the things, the extraordinary things that he did in the service to Christ and in bringing that gospel to other people, by that same grace of God, the Corinthians also believed the gospel that Paul and the other apostles preached. So we preached and so you believed. The gospel is the message of salvation by God's grace. Is that the gospel you believe? Do you believe the one true gospel, not some other gospel so called, but the one true gospel as presented in these scriptures? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God Himself, come into the world as a man to save sinners? Do you believe that He alone is the one predicted in the Old Testament as the fulfiller of God's promises? Do you believe that only faith in Him can save? Do you believe in your heart that He is risen and alive to this day? Do you believe that it is only by God's grace and nothing that you bring before Him? That no merits, nothing that that earns your salvation? That it's only by His grace that you can receive that? If you don't believe those things, then you need to repent. Repent. You need to place your trust in Jesus alone. But if you do believe those things, then hold fast to Christ. You won't do that in your own strength. It will be by the grace of God. But hold fast to Christ and bring that gospel message to as many others as you can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace in coming to us in the person of Jesus Christ and for the grace by which we are saved from the consequences of our sins. Grant that we may ever hold fast to the risen Lord in true faith. For we know that only by faith in Him can we be saved as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.